0: This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors as well as the occasional guest to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you.
1: As always, we bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. We'll also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions, like this one with Omicron surging, what are actionable steps you can take to stay safe? Here to help us answer that question is Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Dr. Mark is the lead on COVID-19 for the American Medical Women's Association and the former senior medical advisor for the White House, HHS, and NASA. Dr. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you with us today.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So our focus today is going to be
1: on the latest COVID surge with the Omicron variant. Our patients, friends, family members, everyone is so confused in the public about what is going on and what they can do to protect themselves. So Dr. Mark, can you briefly highlight what we know right now about the Omicron variant? Why is it so much more contagious? Is the incubation period different? And does that mean that Delta is behind us?
2: a really important question. Omicron is a variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It has well over 50 different mutations, which enable it to be extremely contagious and to potentially evade the immune system. It is the most, or one of the most, transmissible viruses on this planet. I believe that we will all be exposed to it and potentially infected by it. And we know that vaccines and boosters or what I like to call right now the third shot may help to diminish some of the severity of what we can see from this virus. There is a lot of open questions because we are just dealing with it over a period of a few weeks. I think it's been pretty extraordinary about the numbers of individuals who've been infected in this country and around the globe in such a short period of time. I would not be surprised to see us reach well over 500,000 patients this week or in the next few days, and potentially going to over a million or more in the coming days and weeks. What we know about Omicron is based a lot on what we learned from what happened in South Africa, and we found that it tended to be a more mild illness with less severe hospitalization ICU visits. But keep in mind, every country, every nation is different. Less than 10% of the population in South Africa is over the age of 65, less than 30% or so of the population are vaccinated. Many individuals were exposed to the other variants, so they have natural immunity, which may connote a different experience to this virus. We are learning a great deal from what is happening in the UK, where we're actually seeing some more hospitalizations than anticipated, and filled hospitals are being built. What is also concerning is that our children are being affected, and they've been affected by the other variants but do not really experience severe issues, severe side effects. We're seeing a rise in hospitalization, and the question is really open. Why is this happening? We believe that this virus tends to infect more in the upper respiratory tract rather than in the lower. We know children are extremely sensitive to this, as we see, for example, with bronchiolitis, and that may be compounding it. One of the issues that I think is outstanding is that we focus a great deal on how we'll impact our hospital capacity, as well as our essential services. We don't know, just by the sheer numbers, the volume, it will potentially have significant impact. But I also want us to think long-term as well. And that is, even if this virus causes mild or asymptomatic disease, What percentage of our patients are going to go on and develop long COVID or long collar syndrome? In the past, generally around 30 to 40% of patients who had mild or asymptomatic disease have gone on to develop this chronic form, a post-acute COVID syndrome, if, if you can call it that. And keep in mind, long COVID is associated with over 200 symptoms impacting every single system in the body. So I think what we need to do is be aware of what's happening certainly currently, but also look long range to what we need to do to ensure that we provide adequate medical care.
1: Thank you so much. That is a lot of great information. So I just want to help us break that down a little bit and unpack it a little bit to help people take action, do actionable things to protect themselves. So. As you say, the Omicron variant is so fast moving and you put it really in very, very glaring terms that you anticipate based on what we're seeing, that maybe everyone on the planet will be exposed and most likely infected. So in terms of taking action, let's go through the anatomy of an infection with the Omicron variant. So from exposure to potential illness to getting back to life, let's break that down a little bit. So starting with exposure, we've all sort of been trained to think, okay, I'm exposed or I'm positive. Let me tell my exposures. But what does that even mean anymore now that it's just all over the place and we're knowingly or unknowingly being exposed? When is the best time for me to test if I think I may have been exposed, but I have no symptoms?
2: It's a really great question, and your prior question was about the issue of incubation. We believe that there is a shorter incubation period with this virus, generally with the other variants. It was around four to five days, and so that really helped to guide us to when we needed to test. We believe that this is shorter, perhaps two days, three days. What we're seeing is a doubling time and period of just two days, so we really do believe the incubation period is shorter. The issue regarding how contagious you are, I still think is outstanding. CDC has stated that they believe it is actually shorter, and that was one of the reasons why they shortened the isolation and quarantine period. I think data needs to evolve to really see across populations what that will be. We know when you look at history, and I think it's really appropriate as we start January and the Roman god Janus, you look forward and you also look back is when you look back in history, what got us through these other pandemics? When you, for example, didn't have vaccines, and it was those basic public health measures, that old-fashioned masking. I call it a cheap medical device, but we now know how important it is that this medical device fit well, be worn correctly, and be a high grade. It's not just a bandana or just a piece of cloth. It really needs to filter. We also know social distancing. Now, the question here is if we're dealing with very aerosolized virus, it's not just droplets that drop within five, six feet, but can stay really airborne for a while and travel great distances. What do we mean by social distancing? I think that question is outstanding as well. And then the basic hand hygiene and ventilation, opening those wonderful windows, having HEPA filters. And these are some of the basic measures I think that we're going to need to really employ in our work sites as well as in our school systems and really across the board, if we're going to get through this with the less of severity on our health systems and our workforce.
1: So what I'm hearing you say is that we should really kind of think about the infection being everywhere. And please correct me if I'm wrong and sort of living in that way, um, not in a way that sort of imposes these harsh, sort of mental health consequences, but living in a way that we would want to protect ourselves in the best way possible. So what does that mean if you test positive and you're asymptomatic and you're at home with your family? Do you isolate yourself from your family members? Do you wear a mask in the home? What does that mean really for someone who's saying, okay, I'm going to step away from outside life activities, but what can I do inside my own home
2: and these were the same questions if you recall about two years ago that we actually asked so your question about testing let's go back to that for a moment our gold standard test is the pcr test polymerase chain reaction here is a quick word from our sponsor
0: we take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the nespod studios Enjoy the show.
2: And what we noticed is that it was relatively sensitive, but it could take some time. And it may not be that point in time scenario that could be an advantage to you in regard to decision making. So we've been very fortunate that we've developed these rapid tests, lateral flow tests, determining whether you have enough viral load that it could be d- detected. And that's been the big question is, when do you need to test? And we believe that you need to do one serial test because at one moment you may be negative, but you may have enough viral load several hours later that it will detect it. And there's also another question with this variant. Will it be sensitive, this test be sensitive enough to determine whether you've been infected by the Omicron variant? And some tests are better than others. Um, We are quite fortunate that the FDA has a website on FDA.gov that lists the tests that have been determined to be effective and sensitive enough. And I really recommend everyone check it out. I know a lot of people are having a difficult time obtaining tests, so they're going onto the internet and just ordering whatever they can find. And you may order a test that actually may not be sensitive enough, and it may be basically worthless for you. So I would recommend serial testing. Um, the other important point here is that when people have gone to get the PCR test and they've gone it, let's say four days before they're going to travel or connect with family members or go back to school, it really may not be relevant at that point because during that time you may be infected. And with the Omicron variant, we're seeing that again, that shorter incubation period. So you may be coming into the work site or to a school or onto a plane and actually be infectious. So those are important issues in regard to your home life. I really think you have to maintain as rigid standards as possible, but the challenge we have is that this is such an infectious variant that even if you do everything almost perfectly, most likely your family members are going to be exposed. It's just the nature of it. I've had to mentally actually reframe in my mind how I see the world right now. And, you know, I come from the space program, so we're always preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. And perhaps, you know, it's it's one way to live. I, I see the glass is always half half full, and then I'm trying to find solutions to to fill it up. But it's an easier way for me to live. And so right now I see everyone is potentially infected. And what I do is I mask up. I'm pretty compulsive about that at this point. And I'm re- thinking of what things I need to do and what the environment will be like. So, for example, I just canceled a trip back to my home state of Colorado, um, primarily because of airport scenarios and cancellations of flights being on a plane where people are taking their masks off to eat and drink. And then, you know, realizing I may be coming to an environment that's 9,000 or 14,000 feet and I might be coming in with a respiratory infection if I get infected. So this is where I think people need to really... Think strategically, not, not panic, but just prepare. The one shining light here is if it goes through wildfire, like wildfire through our population, we will peak, we will come down. But again, we want to get through this with as less damage as possible.
1: Yeah, I think you make a great point about really thinking strategically, because as you say, we've been living this for many years now. And I think that there had come a point where people that had done everything right, quote unquote, so had gotten vaccinated, had gotten the booster, their children are vaccinated, they are masking um, indoors, they're trying to do everything the way that um, best protects themselves and their families. And it can be really hard mentally to get back in a headspace where you're now kind of thinking, okay, now I have to limit things even more. Um, So I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. You mentioned that you personally canceled a trip. How do we talk to our children um, specifically about trying to shift things so that we can best protect ourselves?
2: It's really a change of mindset and letting people know that this isn't going to be forever. This is temporary. I know there's been a lot of debate recently about whether do we just close schools and go virtual or do we try to stay open as long as possible? And and I've gone back and forth with that. And I'm right now at the moment where I think we actually go virtual. And allows teachers to do their lessons, to begin planning their lessons virtually so that they're less stressed. Because keep in mind, it's not just our children we have to protect. We have to protect our, our teachers and, and those who support our school systems. And we need to de stress people as much as possible. I think if we can ensure that we could provide this perfect environment. I think everybody wants children back in school. We know it's the best place for them to be. But I think there's a great deal of stress right now from parents and from children themselves, and then certainly those who teach them. So in a sense, I would almost go virtual for the next few weeks, which would also potentially limit the, the exchange of virus. So it might slow down the process and it allow people to just get control of their, their family situations. I think again what we have to do is everything that we're able to do but realize that this virus is just it's it's so transmissible in the air stays in the air in, in our cold dry environments it stays in the air so no matter w- what you may do you still might be getting infected but it will be from doing your daily life not going to a mass concert and being around thousands of people screaming so I, I think you know we just have to realign and and I always tell people we we do this as physicians and we do this as clinicians. The, the risk-benefit analysis, there's always a risk to what we do in life, but is the benefit going to override it? And once you make that decision, then you go with it. So for example, was it worth connecting with somebody knowing that you might be infected? Will that infect the rest of your family or what you need to do to go back to school or to go back to work? I mean, so this is where we each have to have ownership of our, our decisions.
1: Well, you know, that really resonates with me as the mother of two children that are in elementary school where our school did go virtual for the elementary kids um, this week, which was definitely something that was a huge stress on us as parents trying to balance our work. My husband's a health professional as well. So trying to figure that out. And then we have a, a toddler who's in daycare and the daycare is open. So. The question is now, how are we going to protect these children that are younger than five that can't be vaccinated um, and that can't wear masks? So one of the things, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, um, a lot of moms that are in a similar position have kind of pushed our nursing a lot longer than we we may have wanted to do. So I am still nursing. I have a I think, 19-month-old at this point, and I am just trying to get her any kind of protection I can. So through being vaccinated and then boosted, I am continuing to, to go forward with this until she can potentially be vaccinated. What are your thoughts? What's the data that we have on, on breastfeeding and protection for the unvaccinated?
2: It's a really great question, and and thank you for sharing your experiences. I know as we talk about going virtual, The impact is so significant, especially on working moms and dads, because it totally disrupts every part of your life. Um, And that's why I think preparation is helpful. If you're given a little leeway, you can perhaps get into place what you need to do to support yourself and your family. So, again, not doing it last minute, but having a little bit of of lag time, so to speak, can, can be helpful we come back to the question of immunity we still don't know the duration nor the durability of our immune response to natural infection nor to vaccine and it seems as if with every variant we have a more open question but what we do know and what the NIH has been studying is the value of breastfeeding and what can that do for our offspring and, and we we very jokingly but also lovingly call it liquid gold because of the maternal exchange of antibodies to our offspring. So we believe it's quite helpful. You're sharing whatever immunity you have. And certainly it does make sense that you're trying to convey whatever and and carry whatever you can to protect your children.
1: One more question regarding the daycare children. Some schools are virtual. Some are still in person. Kids come back with a lot of various infections various upper respiratory infections. So what is, you mentioned serial testing, but we're really struggling to find tests at home. There are hours long lines to get PCR tests. So what do you think is a good strategy for a child in daycare who's coming home every two weeks with a runny nose or a cough? Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
2: Yes, you know, we always, again, very jokingly and lovingly call them giant petri dishes because they are being exposed and actually in a sense those exposures are helping to develop an immune system to make it more robust. So in prior years, that would not necessarily be a bad thing. It would be uncomfortable for family members who would have a cold or or symptoms is significant for a cold or an upper respiratory infection, and you move on. But because we're dealing with, again, the coronavirus, and we don't know the long-term impact of it, it, it carries a different weight. I think the challenge we have now with testing is that, one, we have a shortage, so there's an access issue, and then there's the issue of sensitivity um i am beginning to feel until we correct that situation it's almost like checking for a drop of water in an ocean because the virus is so so much around us and again if you just sort of switch the flip the switch to everyone is infected at this point even though hopefully they're not and you act accordingly i think that changes your behavior i just think that we are in a scenario right now you know we we use these cataclysmic terms you know blizzard deluge, inferno, tornado, all the terms of a disaster movie to connote what we're experiencing. And I think the bottom line with that is, you know, what do you do to prepare for that snow day, which ironically we have on the East Coast, which is almost enforcing a lockdown upon us, you know, nature's way of slowing down the spread of this virus. Um, but you do what you can. And it, again, we go back to those basic public health measures. You can't beat yourself over the head if you still get infected, even though you've done it, because this virus is outwitting what we have available. But that doesn't mean we give up the fight. We are in a battle and we use every weapon in our arsenal.
1: So, one final thought or, and question for you How will we know? that this surge is behind us, that the surge is receding, to continue your ocean metaphor?
2: Yes. So what we look at traditionally are hospitalizations to monitor the severity of this infection. Again, keep in mind, our vaccines were really designed to decrease the severity in hospitalizations and potentially death. So we'll look at that. We'll look at people who um, don't have symptoms. And I think it really will be the embodiment of all that because, again, hospitalizations will not be the only metric of how far-reaching this virus is in the population. It's really people experiencing symptoms, being aware of them. You know, I think, especially as clinicians, we are so used to being exposed to so much that we don't even notice if we have a headache or if we had a sore throat or we had rhinorrhea, you know, a runny nose. But now we need to be attuned to that because those are metrics of whether you've been exposed and, and whether you, know, you are potentially contagious. So I think we all have to be um, aware of it. I think the other important point is that we look at the R-naught, we look at the transmissibility of the virus in the population. So if you are getting home tested, and I, I tend to trust a positive test, if you do have one, report it so that your public health departments know what they're up against. And I think it's just really is important for all of us. We're all messengers and we are all leaders of our own healthcare. that we need to monitor our, our signs and symptoms and we need to report back. Hopefully we will get through this within the next six to eight weeks as far as a spike. But, you know, as I tell people, as long as there's infection anywhere on this planet, there's infection everywhere. So, you know, we still always have to be on guard, but we will come back to our lives. You know, early on in this pandemic, I believe it was around March or April, I did an interview for The Independent out of the UK. And I said, I saw this as the three R's. I saw it as a as a regional, rolling, and revolving pandemic. And what I meant by that is every part of the country, every part of the world was going to experience it slightly differently, rolling in the sense that it's going to be endemic. You know, we have coronaviruses around us all the time. And we've got four cousins that have been with us for a very long time. And I hope this one will evolve into that type of mild strain. And it will be revolving in the sense, as case rates go up, our restrictions go up. And as they come down, those goes down. And we just adapt. And you know, it, it will almost be like second nature. We'll be taking our masks with us perhaps for years to come. And it's not punishment. It's just a tool that we use to protect ourselves, just like putting on a seatbelt when we drive in a car So I think we, again, have to reframe it and take the political nature out of it and just look at what we need to do to protect public health, which we've been doing for eons, and we're going to be doing for eons from this point forward as well.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Mark. I love your final thoughts on that and how to reframe it for ourselves so we can handle this surge and any surge to come from this virus and anything else we have to face as a collective society in the future. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you. This will conclude the episode.
1: Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and
2: subscribe. Thank you.